0: Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: Because that's what we're going to be doing now, ending the book of James on a very, very critical subject of prayer. And I really want us to really center down on this because I think if the truth be told that all of us could probably use a little bit of a tune-up in our prayer life. Well, I'm going to really ask the Lord that he'll take today's message and really encourage you. Now, when we talk about prayer from the book of James, some of you might not know this, but James, that great writer who was inspired by the Lord to put down this tremendous truth on James, he was known as Old Camel Knees. Do you know why he was called Camel Knees? You can probably figure it out. This man spent a great deal of his time on his knees praying. I also was finishing up the biography on Hudson Taylor. And of course, when they finish a biography, they want to tell you how that great guy died. Well, the family found him upstairs on his bed, leaned sideways over because he was praying on his knees. Founder of the China Inland Mission, prayed for thousands of people to come to faith in Christ. And then George Mueller This was a man who lived in the 1800s who had a particular conviction. His conviction was that he believed that he could, like other Christians could as well, go to the Lord with whatever prayer request, whatever need that they would have, without ever mentioning that need to anyone, but privately telling God about that, that the Lord could answer that prayer request without him having to do fundraising. Now, what you might not know is that George Mueller had his own ministry, as well as a pastor, but he had his ministry primarily working with those who were orphans in an orphanage. And there was 2,000 of these at a time that they had to work with those kids. And again, no fundraiser, no st- Staff development, no uh, money development, just going to the Lord in prayer. As we end with the book of James, you're going to find that the aspect of pray and prayer is mentioned six times, seven times in the fabric of James. He was man of tremendous prayer. Now, when I think of prayer, I think of prayer being a tremendous privilege that you and I have, as well as a tremendous responsibility that we have. We know that Abraham in the Old Testament, he talked to God Do you know that when you talk to God, you talk to the same God that he talked to? When you move into the New Testament, when you see Jesus talking to God the Father, the same God the Father that he spoke to is the same God the Father that you speak to. And then you move into the life of Paul. When he was in a distress, he would go to the same Heavenly Father. So when you pray to God the Father, you're praying to the same God that all these men prayed to. So it's a great privilege but it's also a great responsibility. Yet when I look at that, it's also probably one of the aspects in our Christian life that we fail at the most. Now it doesn't mean that we're not inundated with a lot of information. I went up to my personal study library and I thought, let me find out how many books I've had on prayer. And I've read through all of them, I have 26 books and booklets on prayer alone. Not to mention a file cabinet that has that in there. Now I'm not here bragging on that stuff because you can have all the information, go all the seminars, you can Google the word prayer if you want to. You could be in Bible college or seminary. The real question is... is Are you having an intimate relationship with the Lord by prayer? You see, prayer is not merely asking God for stuff. It's building an intimate relationship by communicating with him. As we finish the book of James, there's really three questions that he answers for us in our finished study. The first one is, I think it's a very important one. And that's the question, when should I pray? The second is, what kind of a person really can pray? There is a defining type of person, and you'll see what that is in a moment. And then finally, how would I get my prayers to be more effective? Now, here's the question before I answer those three. Do you feel like your prayer life is as good as you want it to be? Now, I'm not here to bring you on a guilt trip, but are you really praying and getting your prayers answered the way you're hoping? How many of you are struggling right now and you know that you've gone to the Lord but it doesn't seem to be eliminating some of the challenges that you're facing? Well, maybe for just a moment, don't blame God and maybe don't blame yourself, but just simply say, all right, I'm going to lean into this message and I'm going to take from it what God wants me to do to kind of tune up my prayer life so I can have a better, more intimate relationship with the Lord. So let's begin by answering the first question. When should I pray? Well, here's the first time in the passage here. It talks about when I'm hurting emotionally let me read that to you it says is anyone among you suffering let him pray Now you know that the Bible that you have in front of you has been translated into English, but it comes from the Greek in the New Testament. And the Greek word there is a word that means more than just suffering. It means to suffer misfortune. It means to be in distress or under stress. In fact, in the book of Timothy, it talked about something even more than that. It was like the word hardships. He's not so much talking about the external things like a broken relationship with someone you love or maybe a financial setback because we're living in maybe a recession right now. He's talking about, yes, those things, but it's what those things do to you on the inside. How many of you are struggling even with your own health, maybe, because you are so stressed out over issues that you have been carrying with you for so long? Something that you haven't been able to break through just yet. Well, it's that kind of suffering on the inside, that emotional suffering that he's talking about here. Notice it goes a little bit further. It says this in the rest of the verse. It says, Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. And so I think that's important too. But notice how the two of them go together. Here we see a person suffering. He needs to pray. And those that are now cheerful, let them rejoice in whatever they're going through. Well, the Bible says to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. It seems like our life is kind of an up and down time. I remember when I was in um, Bible college, I had a person once tell me that if you're going into the ministry, remember that when you start your ministry, it's honeymoon. Then you're there a little bit longer and it becomes work. And then if you're there a lot longer, then it becomes nothing but warfare and they really come at you. And I got thinking, do I really want to go into the ministry if we have something like that? And then I had someone who'd been in the ministry a long time who really knew God's word. And here's what he told us, guys. And I really think that this little axiom works for you and whatever you're going through as well. And here's what he said. Every day, God allows you to have some special times where it's a real honeymoon. A love kiss and a love hug from the Lord. And that's the time to rejoice And to look for those that are having that love kiss from the Lord and you rejoice with them. And yes, every day there's going to be some work. Yes, you have to do the daily duties of Christian living that requires us to do the disciplines. And then there's going to be some days of warfare because we know there's an unseen enemy out there that does not want us to rejoice. There's an unseen enemy out there that wants to stop us from working and serving the Lord. And so he's going to come against us. But every day we're going to have that. And so our days can really go up and down. Now some of you might be sensing that you're called into the ministry. And if you are, particularly the pastorate, remember your two greatest requirements would be that you would be a person of the word, you know the book, you live the book, you teach the book correctly. And then secondly, that you would be a person of prayer. Now, when I hear that, I think, that's good. I want to be praying for our people. But you know what else you'll find when you're in the ministry? That you're probably as good emotionally as the last phone call you've got from someone. Here, someone will call you on the phone and say, I have 25 cases of books I want to donate to the ministry. Great theology books. And you're rejoicing and you're thanking the Lord so you can just add to your library good books for people to use. Next phone call, someone's going through a cancer situation, a broken relationship, a lost job. You're going up and down. So whatever you might be going through right now, the lifestyle of a Christian is going to be, yes, you're going to have some suffering, and yes, you're going to have some rejoicing. And in either case, when you suffer, when you go through those emotional times, you need to not look at that, but look at the peace that God could give to you when you pray. And if you're sensing that God is doing some great things, don't feel guilty, you rejoice. And when others are rejoicing because good things are happening to them, you celebrate with them because our life is going to be cyclical like that sometimes every single day. So when do we pray? Well, when we suffer emotionally. But the second time we pray is when we're hurting physically. I want to spend a little bit more time on this one because I want to unpack some issues that sometimes are taught in the Christian world today and I want to make sure we're clear on it. So when I'm hurting physically... Look, if you will, at verse 14 and 15. Here's what it says. Is any among you sick? That's a good question. And so he's writing that to the dispersed Jews. He says, is any of you out there, are you sick? So I would ask as a pastor, are any of you dealing with an illness right now? Then he says, let him, that sick person, call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders of the church, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, I think it's important to understand the word sick right here. Sick does not mean. Post nasal drip. It doesn't mean that you just kind of have a little headache for the day. In the context of Scripture here, the word sick is a much more severe word for an illness. In fact, that word sick means you are so sick that you're without strength. You can't get out of bed. You can't go even to see a doctor. You can't move about. In fact, that same word for sick is very, listen to this, was used by, to identify the man in the Bible named Lazarus. It says he was sick and then he died. Dorcas was sick, and then she died. The man at the pool of Bethesda was was sick for a long time. He couldn't even get to the pool to get healed, so he was sick for a long time. So this illness that it's talking about is any of you suffering a type of illness that has so debilitated you that you can't go to work, you can't go to church, and there's even the suspicion that you might die from it. That's the kind of sickness that it's talking about in this context. So that's the sickness that it speaks here. Now let me talk to you about three different kinds of sicknesses in the Bible. Now I'm going to have to step away from the passage for a moment to do that. So you can identify the kind of sicknesses that might be out there. Here's the first kind of sickness. That would be the sickness that's known as the sickness that would lead to death. That there are sicknesses that we will have that no matter how much we pray, no matter how many doctors we go to, no matter how much medicine we take, there is a sickness that could bring about our particular death. Now, some of you know people that have done everything, gone to great lengths to try to get healed. But there is that sickness and death. The second kind of sickness is the sickness for discipline. You're going to find in another book of the Bible that the Apostle Paul is now writing, not James, and he writes to the church at Corinth. And he says, now, in this church at Corinth, many of you are weak, early stages of sickness. Then he says, others of you are really sick. And then he says, and many of you will sleep or die, so to speak. So he says there's three phases of sickness. And the reason that he identified those three different conditions of sickness is because the people in that church were having um, an issue. And that issue was they wanted to take communion, which is an outward sign of an inward attitude before the Lord of taking the juice and the crackers and remembering of the Lord until he comes. But they were doing it without a pure heart. They were doing it when there were factions in the group. They were doing it ahead of other people. They were doing it with sin in their life. They were doing it for all the wrong reasons, thinking that as long as it appears right outwardly, everything is okay. And God says that they were being disciplined. You're weak, you're sick, and some will die young. And and God is trying to get their attention to clean up their act. So that is a form of sickness. So one sickness is unto death. Another sickness is God is disciplining you he's spanking you he's trying to get your attention he's not angry with you he's not wanting you to have sickness and pain he wants to use that as a vehicle to bring about restoration and for a deeper walk with him and here's the third one and this is the kind of sickness known as the sickness to the glory of God This particular sickness is one that's not dealing with sin in your life. It's not a sickness that might bring about your death. It's a sickness that in that sickness now, you've been given a golden God-given opportunity to bring extra blessing and glory to the Lord. Do you remember the story in John 11, where there was this sick person, and they began to ask, Did this man sin? Did his mom and dad sin? Is that why he's sick? And the Lord said, No, it's not because of that. It's because of God's glory. Now those of you might remember people that have had a debilitating injury or illness that came upon them for X reason that God permitted to come into their life. And that person is now taking that situation in their weakened state and they're going to use it in some measure to bring glory to the Lord. That's why in in Scripture it says, In our weakness He is made strong. I'll most gladly glory in my infirmities. So that God's grace would be known to others. So again, there is a sickness unto glory. Now here's the thing. We who are on the outside of all of this can't judge you and should not be pointing our finger at you to say, well, you're sinned, you're going to die. What you have to do is get alone with the Lord and say, all right, Lord, you are now using this event for the purpose of bringing me in a right relationship with you. Is it maybe you're going to use this and take me home with it? Is it because you're disciplining me and I need to maybe make some changes in my thinking and my behavior? And then is this a sickness that I'm going to use it to bring more glory to you out of that? Only you could answer that, but it's a question that you do need to ask yourself and you do need to answer as correctly as you can before the Lord. Well, now I need to step a little bit further. If we are sick, what kind of healing would be out there? So I'm going to talk about four different kinds of healings. Now, I wish I had time, almost a, a Sunday on each one, to open up all the Scripture and all the languages and all the illustrations. But I'm going to just kind of give it a lick at a promise for you today. And if you want to sit down and talk with me, you make an appointment and I'd be glad to open up Scripture with you. But I'd like to talk about four different kinds of healing. Then I'm going to show you the one that I believe is the one most biblical for you to be able to embrace. So here's number one. The first kind of healing is known as the sensationalist. I'm identifying, these are my words, all right, but they're the sensationalists. These are the guys you see on television. You might go to a convention. You might be able to see them. And generally, they're in front of a lot of people. And a lot of people are watching them do all sorts of stuff. And they'll claim God glory this, God this, the, God that. But at the same time, there's a great deal of sensationalism. They often are flamboyant. Sometimes they'll blow on the people to get them healthy. Sometimes they'll hit the people. Sometimes they'll hold the people to they fall back there's a lot of different ways but again the cameras are rolling and the people are watching and so we call that a sensationalism now I think it would be good to take that backdrop and throw it up against Christ so now if you look at Christ did Christ have massive healing meetings no he did not so we don't have a model there In fact, when he did heal, generally when he healed, and generally is like most of the time, he did it so privately that he would take the person in a private area and he would do the healing there. So it wasn't something that was done as a model for us to follow to do it in this massive event. All right? Keep that in mind. I'd also like to add add this. When those folks do it, whether you want to call them miracle healers, etc., you need to remember that, yes, God can do miracles and yes you live long enough in in Christ you're going to meet people whom God has chosen to sovereignly divinely heal but at the same time if you know your Bible you're going to know circumstances where absolute miracles were performed but it wasn't God who did the miracle it was Satan who did it one illustration will be when God told Moses Moses take your rod before they led the children of Israel out of Egypt and he said throw it down and when he threw it down into what did that rod become a snake then <clears throat> picked up the rod it was a stick again now here is where the miracle went sideways the other magicians in pharaoh's court they threw down their rod and when they did that what happened to that rod it turned into snakes too. Now you had a conflict. Because now you have Moses' rod with snake. And you got these with snakes. So what happens? God showed himself strong because then what happened? Moses' rod with snakes went after the other ones. God's more powerful. I just want you to see one. And we could talk about other passages of the scripture. So be careful of the sensationalist style of healing. The second kind is what we're going to call the confessionalist type. The confessionalist. They're the ones that basically say that God's will is that everybody is to be healed. Sometimes it's referred to as a name it and claim it situation. And they'll generally say, if you have enough faith, you claim that because you now have that special healing in the atonement. And you claim it, name it by faith. And so what happens is, we have to work up our faith, so we have enough faith to make sure that this happens. And they'll quote some isolated passages in scripture that you can cast this out and you can move this mountain and all that kind of stuff. So you need to have more faith. And so now let's say that you now are wanting that miracle to occur and it's not happening. Then you are underneath that guilt of maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe I just didn't do this right. Well, let me tell you where that ends up if you're going to go down that premise and build that logic. That then puts you in a situation where God works for you. If you name it, he'll do it. He becomes the genie in the bottle that if you rub him just the right way or the right amount at the right time that he will do whatever you want him to do. So now it becomes God serves you and you don't serve God. And what we've done then is we've taken the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and thrown it out. Because God can do what he wants with whomever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Because God is still God. And that's probably the biggest step of faith that you could take you take that step where you believe that he is in control and has the right to control that, you are light years ahead of many Christians who are still down on this level right here because God is sovereign. And it's not so hard of a step to take when you take the step in Scripture. So you have the sensationalist, then you have the confessionalist. It moves us now to the third, and that would be the person who would be called the rationalist. The rationalist. This is the person that basically says, you're sick, but really you're not sick. It's all in your mind. You just think you're sick. And so they begin to talk about funny things that goes on. And so you have to deny that you're sick. You're denying that you have these issues. You've got to realize that you're really, really healthy. And so they rationalize this stuff away. The end of the product is, when you take it through normal science, you take them through the normal issues of life, they really are sick. And that person really will die if they don't get attention. And many of you have read stories in the newspapers of those who have. That's the rationalist. Now remember, sometimes suffering is according to the will of God, however He wants us to suffer. Now that brings us to the fourth one, and this would be the position that authentic Christianity, your your, uh, Orthodox Christianity has believed ever since the time of Christ. The others have taken a path away from the clear teaching of God's Word. So I want to remind you of what we who are believers in Christ ought to believe. It's going to be very simple. In fact, it's almost too simple. But yet again, I'd be willing to sit down and talk to you. It is true nonetheless. Here it is. The realist. They recognize two facts about God. Fact number one is this, that all healing does come from God. Now whether you use man, and I'm referring to that like doctors, male and female, or medicine and all the great different help that you have out there, they would still recognize as we do all the sciences appropriately with the greatest skill set and knowledge that we have, ultimately God is in control of everything we cannot control. And so God is the one who heals. So truth number one, the realist says God is the healer and he will always get the glory while we will appreciate all those in the medical profession. Secondly, God does not heal everyone. Now that part is hard because why he chooses to heal some and not others and why we would permit a child to die young or an older person to get healed to have a few more years or whatever. And then you get into the various different groups. I don't understand that, but I don't have to understand all about God because God is doing something much bigger than this. While he cares for me this very moment as I'm here at this pulpit, he also says that this is only one nanosplit second of all eternity compared to the biggest thing I'm doing to build my kingdom for the glory of myself. And so I can't put God into this one moment, in this one event, in this one child, in this one woman, in this one man, in this one sickness. I can't do that. But I do know that God is going to work it all out. Now listen carefully. That's why it is essential for you and me to know Christ is our Savior. Because while we may never get healed in this world, God does promise there is healing in the atonement. And that healing is an eternal healing that we'll receive when we have eternal life in heaven. We will get a new body. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease. Now some of you might be saying, well, pastor, that's just a big cop-out. I'm afraid it's not a cop-out. I'm telling you that it's truth. And if you embrace that, it'll help you to sort through a lot of the challenges that you might have. So let's stay in the passage again. Let me come back now. So James says, so what do you do when you're sick? Well, in this context, we're going beyond you need an aspirin. We're going beyond you need to see a doctor. You've done everything. You're now basically crumbling on the inside. The suffering and sickness is so bad. What do we really do then? In this passage, it says that you, the sick one, needs to call the elders of the church. Now let me pause there before I go a little bit further. That's why we don't stand up here on Sunday morning and say, if any of you are sick, come on down, we're going to have a healing meeting. any of you are sick, we've got our guys up here, we're going to anoint you with oil. It's not where various Bible study groups or Bible teachers or Sunday school class teachers are going to do a, a, an oil anointing time or praying for you. It's where that you are so sick, we have to do a house call or maybe a hospital call. Now, you might be so sick you can't, so you have a loved one that calls us. However that is, it's you requesting a visit where someone comes to you. You call us. We don't announce it. We don't, we don't wait. We don't come unannounced. We might come to pray. We might be there to help you, to encourage you. But for this part of it, you have to say, will you do it? So who are your pastors at this church? At this time in its history, it's Pastor Dennis, Pastor Charlie, and for me. Here it says plural. So you should call for maybe more than one. I don't want to make this thing so hard and fast and tight little box, but at the same time, I don't want to make this so loosey-goosey and all of a sudden we go down that slippery slope into what the world is doing or the so-called Christian world is. It says, call for the elders of the church. Now, that phrase, the church, doesn't say the elders of a ministry, the department heads of ministries or Bible college or seminary people, teachers, etc., or faith ministries or evangelists. It says the elders, the shepherds, the pastors of the church. Which now, and I'm going to take a little bit of a step, would imply if you're calling the elders of the church, it ought to be your church. Perhaps there's a link here why it is important to unite with a faith family of people who really know you, who really care for you, who will serve you, who will help you in your walk and your intimacy with God, who will be there for you. Now in the context, if I just stopped right there, It sounds kind of spooky, but in the context, it really opens up why it should be the church. Because in a moment, if you're sick, it talks about confessing your sin. It talks about dealing with some of the brokenness in your life that might need to be dealt with before we ever pray over you, before the oil is ever anointed on top of you.